Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guest on today's podcast is my friend Paul Reeve. Paul Reeve is a professor of history at the University of Utah, and I've been following him on Facebook and some of the articles he's written. He's an expert, really, on Black Mormon history. His book is called Religion of a Different Color, Race, and Mormon Struggles for Whiteness, published by Oxford in 2015, and is just one of the most thoughtful voices in our faith about the history of Black Latter-day Saints. Um, I think he won't like me saying this, but I think he knows this history as well as anybody. And obviously from the book he's written um, and the awards that book's received and the people in our church that have read that book, I think he has great insights into our history that helps us understand Black Latter-day Saints. So we'll talk about that. But um, this podcast is being recorded in early June. And as you're aware, Black Lives Matters and the race issues in our country and now our world are top of mind. And our own church this week, President Nelson issued a statement with the NAACP denouncing racism. Um, so we've just come a long ways, but we have a long ways to go. I think this podcast will be helpful for our listeners to listen to Paul um, talk about the history of race in our church and our own racism, um, but also what we can do as white Latter-day Saints, for those of you that are white and Latter-day Saint to step in this space in a meaningful way and help um, improve. Um, I think a lot of people for the first time in their lives recognize that they have work to do. I do. I know I hold racist views. I probably have racism still within me. Um, and I need people like Paul in my life to share with me the things that I can do to really honor my baptism covenants, to mourn, bear, and comfort. Um, is that an okay bio, my friend Paul? Yeah, that sounds great. You're very generous. Thank you. Um, Paul grew up in southern Utah. Paul and his wife, Beth, are the parents of six kids. Active Latter-day Saint, received a BA in history from Brigham Young University, a master's in history from Brigham Young University, and a PhD in history from the University of Utah. And I kind of went reverse in my much more limited education, started at the University of Utah. I'm a business guy. And went to BYU and got a graduate degree there. Um, but uh, yeah, there's so many places we could start in this space. I'd love to just have you tell our listeners what drew you to this space. Well, uh, I guess uh, the book uh, began in 2007. Uh, I was just really interested in uh, trying to figure out uh, the Latter-day Saint racial story, uh, the answers that existed weren't uh, satisfying to me. Uh, in my career, I was looking for a next book project. I teach at the University of Utah. We have obviously public uh, publication requirements. Uh, so I was uh, looking for the next project and I thought I might as well satisfy a personal curiosity as well as fulfill a professional objective. Uh, and I was informed by whiteness studies, uh, which had, you know, been a part of uh, U.S. historiography for uh, well over, uh, you know, a decade, uh, maybe even longer by then, uh, where uh, immigrants such as Italians and Irish uh, weren't accepted necessarily as white uh, 
upon arrival and through a labor and immigrant story, they had to earn uh, whiteness for themselves uh, or, you know, be accepted uh, into America. Um, and I had read some of that literature and, uh, you know, grew to understand the power of whiteness in American history. Uh, how decisions were based uh, in this long trajectory of American history, uh, based around uh, you know favoring white over other uh, racial identities. Uh, so you start to sort of uh, formulate a definition of what uh, whiteness means. Um, the very first Congress, for example, in the United States, uh, established in 1790 requirements for naturalization. Uh, they said to be a naturalized citizen, you had to be white and free. So right off the bat, um, because I happened to be born white, I was given more privilege than someone who happened to be born black or Native American uh, or Asian. Um, so in a variety of ways, you start to see the power of whiteness um, so reading uh, these whiteness uh, histories, I really, um, because of what I had seen in studying Latter-day Saint history in the 19th century, became convinced that Latter-day Saints were being denigrated as not white enough. And I'm talking about white Latter-day Saints being denigrated as not white enough. Um, and so I, I wanted to figure out if that was really a thing. Uh, and I started my research, I uh, spent seven years researching, and uh, the evidence became overwhelming, uh, too much to even include in the book. Uh, you know, the examples just multiplied themselves. Uh, and so the basic arc of the book is just simply that Latter-day Saints uh, were denigrated as uh, not white enough in the 19th century, and by the 21st century, seen as too white. Uh, in the 19th century, uh, they attempt to claim whiteness for themselves. The most significant way you do so in the 19th century is in distance from blackness. And so you see uh, the racial priesthood and temple restrictions uh, uh, growing, uh, accumulating uh, precedent across the course of the 19th century in fits and starts, firmly in place by the early 20th century. Um, and then by the 21st century, uh, when the LDS church is seen as too white, the effort is to claim a more racially diverse and international identity uh, for the church. So that's sort of the overarching argument of the book in a nutshell. And I encourage our um, readers to check out this book. Um, I'll, will, you tell the t will you tell Paul um, the title of the book again and where people could get a copy? Uh, so it's Religion of a Different Color, Race, and the Mormon Struggle for Whiteness. Um, if you're in the Salt Lake Valley, I'm going to put a plug in for Kurt Bench and Benchmark Books. Good. Kurt is a good friend. Uh, please support local booksellers. Uh, he carries Religion of a Different Color. Uh, you can also uh, obviously get it on Amazon, uh, other online uh, locations. And um, I, you know, talking to you, I'm not a historian, so I don't always even have the right vocabulary to ask the right questions. So I'll do my best here because I really want to understand what were kind of the macro issues that drove the church 
These are in the 1800s, which I guess is the 19th century. I even get confused on that, Paul. You got it right. <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> what were the macro issues that caused us to feel, to cause this separation um, that we were too, I think the words you, you know, we wanted to be more white. Yeah. Was that politically driven? Was it part of growing the church and feeling like to grow the church, we had to move in that direction? Was it voting issues based on the state of Utah and where the state of Utah politically needed to go? Just give us an idea of the macro issues driving that, or were there? Was it just um, different? Was it just on its own? Yeah, no. Um, I, actually, the, you know, those are those are really good questions. Uh, Mormonism is born into a fraught racial context. Interesting. You can't divorce uh, the founding of the faith from its bigger American context. This is an American-born faith, uh, and the 1830s are fraught with uh, racial questions percolating. Uh, so you have. Uh, slavery, obviously, um, in existence. Uh, most of the northern states have enacted uh, either gradual emancipation or outright abolished slavery. Uh, and slavery has become peculiar to the South. Uh, so historians call it a peculiar institution. It was called a peculiar institution because it became peculiar to the South. Some uh, within that context responded to the ideals of the revolution. Jefferson said, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. And some within the United States took that seriously. And so you have some who uh, start to form anti-slavery societies, some to start, uh, start forming abolitionist groups and organizations. Mormonism is born into this fraught racial context. And in fact, uh, Ohio, one of, uh, you know, the early locations, headquarters of, of the faith, uh, experienced the most uh, anti-abolitionist violence uh, of any state in the nation at the time. How do you escape that context? You absolutely can't. Uh, those are the questions that uh, uh, the LDS leaders and members had to deal with. You have to remember that Joseph Smith claims four revelations that say that this gospel message is to be preached unto every creature. Latter-day Saints like to quote every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. Every creature is less ambiguous. There is no escaping. And uh, early Latter-day Saints seem to take that seriously. They saw this as a universal gospel message, and the first documented uh, person of Black African descent to join the faith was in 1830 in Kirtland, Ohio. There have been Black Latter-day Saints from 1830 to the present. Uh, the problem is, is that fraught racial context. Outsiders look in on Mormons and say, you're too accepting of people that the rest of white society knows should be segregated and even enslaved. And so those kind of accusations are uh, thrown at Mormons. So, for example, one uh, uh, Missouri newspaper said that Mormons had uh, opened an asylum for rogues and vagabonds and free blacks. Uh, they are accepting of people who the rest of white society know should be rejected. Uh, the expulsion of the Latter-day Saints from Jackson County, Missouri, really has to do with W.W. Phelps's editorial in the newspaper in Independence, Missouri, where he writes an article uh, to free people of color. He says to his fellow Black Latter-day Saints in 1833, 
look, if you're going to immigrate to Zion, and Jackson County has been articulated as Zion, uh, you need to be aware of two sections of the Missouri State Code. And he quotes those two sections. He says, Zion is a slave state. Uh, be aware that uh, you're going to have to have papers substantiating your status as a free black person. And if you don't have those papers and you immigrate to Missouri, you're subject to being whipped and expelled from the state. And I don't want my fellow Black Latter-day Saints to experience that. So he's quoting uh, these Missouri, the Missouri State Code. He said, so long as we have no special rule in the church as to people of color. So I'm emphasizing that simply because it's 1833. If you want to suggest that the racial restrictions were in place from the beginning, you have to argue against the evidence. The evidence says otherwise. Um, so there's this open racial vision that uh, over time um, gives way. Uh, Latter-day Saints choose um, their own whiteness um, and choose to distance themselves from their own black brothers and sisters who have also converted. And uh, you see that taking place uh, beginning under Brigham Young uh, across the course of the rest of the 19th century. Um, so uh, I guess to get at your question, it, it's really this fraught political, racial, cultural context Latter-day Saints are uh, denigrated and compared and conflated with uh, Black people, with Native Americans, with Asian immigrants. Uh, you have this racial hierarchy that operates in the 19th century, and they're trying to situate Mormons along this racial hierarchy. And you can really see uh, the formation of a racial identity uh, if you watch the trajectory of uh, how outsiders are talking about Latter-day Saints. Um, they start uh, calling them Mormonite, and then Mormon, and then by the 1840s, describing a Mormon race. By 1860, you have a medical doctor who says that polygamy is giving rise to a new degenerate race in the Great Basin. It makes no sense in the 21st century, but you have to understand and recapture a fraught racial context for what race meant in the 19th century. And uh, the idea was that Mormons were um, mixing amongst uh, other racial groups, darkening the white race, making it unfit for democracy. The argument in the 19th century was that democracy was a government of a white race. Senator Calhoun said that on the floor of the United States Senate in 1848. Um, so uh, political cartoons, uh, especially after polygamy is openly announced, will imagine what Mormon polygamy looks like. And they will have a white male patriarch out front and a long string of wives and sometimes one wife will be imagined as a Native American and one as an African American and one as an Asian. Uh, so fear of race mixing is bound up in what uh, outsiders perceive Latter-day Saints are doing. And it's not merely um, that uh, their religion is suspect, uh, they then become racially suspect. How do you then overcome that? Well, you distance yourself from especially Black Latter-day Saints, um, and you have a racial priesthood and temple restriction uh, is one way of distancing uh, the white leadership, right, and, and the white Latter-day Saints from uh, around Black converts. It's fascinating. 
um, fascinating to listen to and understand. It's gone. <clears throat> the complex history that led to this and um, your point that it didn't start with Joseph Smith, but it started later. Yeah, and that's, that's right. what's taught in our race and the estate priesthood, what we may get to. Um, I want to talk about the book when the book came out. Um, how was it received by Latter-day Saints? Um, you know, I have to say um, for the most part received favorably. Um, so in my own congregation, uh, for example, uh, they invited me to do, um, you know, I, I mean, it wasn't a officially, um, church sponsor, I guess they have to be, uh, careful about those kind of things, but, uh, they have, a um, empty nester, uh, family home evening group who invited me and, members of my congregation uh, bought copies of the book. Um, and then I had some of them who returned um, uh, one um, crying and said, you know, I uh, was never satisfied with the explanations that existed. Uh, I was supposed to believe in a race of God, um, and that was never satisfying to me. Um, uh, thank you for helping me to sort of understand this. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, another uh, member of the congregation uh, came back and, and bought copies for uh, his adult children. Good. And fortunately, um, Latter-day Saints have big families, so that helped <laughs> the book sells. <laughs> Good. Tell your, um, have, have you been speaking at Brigham Young University about this book since it's been released five years ago? Yeah, so uh, um, BYU has invited me down, uh, I think, three separate in, uh, instances, um, the Red Center at BYU, uh, and then um, for the 40th anniversary of the uh, um, 1978 revelation, uh, they had a, a conference at BYU, I was invited to speak, and then uh, the Kennedy Center for International Studies at BYU selected the book as its book of the semester. And I was honored to go back to my alma mater and uh, give a talk. Um, and, uh, you know, really uh, a great honor. Um, so, uh, uh, you know, the faculty at BYU, I think, have, have embraced it some um, draw upon uh, the talks that were recorded um, and assign them, uh, you know, to their classes to to watch the YouTube videos. Um, I think there's an effort to uh, train the rising generation differently than uh, the previous generation on questions of race uh, and whiteness in, in the faith. I'm glad the book, I personally, as I mentioned, haven't read the book. I will read the book. Um, and I just encourage our listeners to read this book. Um, because I think it helps us, helps us as Latter-day Saints do better. I think owning our history and ending our history is a requirement, at least for me, as a committed Latter-day Saint. I want to know our history. I want to know the facts of our history. I'm not scared of the facts. Um, I think it helps me to understand how to be a better Latter-day Saint, how to meet the needs of others that are becoming aware of our facts. I like to own our history. Um, even though I'm not a historian and it's not part of my academic journey. So I think that's a, a thing that um, more and more Latter-day Saints want to do um, and develop a framework to process the complicated um, issues of our history. I think 
That's why I'm glad you're in this space, because um, I think what you're doing provides needed perspective to process this so people can move forward. Talk about the, um, let's shift to this, I'm calling it the daily universe. Is that the right term for the BYU on campus? It is. Paper. And yes. Do you want to talk, um, I think this was, this is an article that came out. I'll read the title of it. Racism continues to surface in the church and and at BYU. It's published on June 3rd, 2020. And I liked your Facebook post about this. Um, the BYU student newspaper, The Daily Universe, published a story about racism on campus and in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I was surprised at how real it is. This isn't your grandma's daily universe or even the universe when I was a student at BYU so many years ago. And then you they you and then you go on to share some more things. But I love that. And to me, that's a compliment to BYU, our students, our administration, our faculty, and your voice to be involved in this sort of hitting our histories head on in a thoughtful, objective way so we can do better. Um, talk about what you said in the in the article. Yeah. Um I I um I was really like I said in that uh, Facebook post, just pleasantly surprised. Uh, the reporter called me, and you know I recognize the constraints that the Daily Universe uh, has to operate under. Um, and so, um, in the conversation with the reporter, I was just uh, um, as open and and honest, um, you know, as I like to be, uh, but was just skeptical that some of the things that I said would would actually make it into the article. Um, so the Facebook post is is more, you know, the surprise that actually some of the things that I said did make it into the article. Uh, you know, I, I want to um, also highlight, uh, you know, the voices of Black Latter-day Saints because these are students at BYU uh, who are living the experience and their voices are included in the article. Um, it's really important for us to listen to them and to understand, uh, to not get defensive, uh, to appreciate their experiences and their lives and uh, to understand that their experiences might be very different from ours. If you respond by saying, well, I had a great time at BYU, then you're not listening. You're not standing in a place of empathy. Um you're simply denying that someone else could have a different experience than you do. Uh, so those voices are included in the article. Um, you know, my research is on the power of whiteness in this racial story. And so the reporter asked me about that, uh, but also asked me about, you know, well, what can we do to change? And, um, you know, that's where I guess my comments became their most pointed. Uh, I feel like history is a part of the solution. And f frustratingly, uh, to date, uh, the institutional church has yet to own up to our racial history. And so I just made those comments uh, to the reporter. Um, I Maybe I should just um, look and see what I actually said, but... Um, 
I said, uh, you know, the, the re reporter we talked about, um, Eller Holland's recent conference talk where he calls out racism. And, and I hope Latter-day Saints, and especially white Latter-day Saints, are paying attention because it's not just Eller Holland. It's been um, a repeated message. Racism is a sin. And uh, when our leaders are saying that, they're talking to us, especially us white Latter-day Saints. We're the ones, right, who are a part of this uh, cultural milieu. We're ones who are a part of a long history, especially in the United States, of white supremacy. Uh, let's not get defensive. Let's recognize that built into the system, baked into the system, is a privilege for whiteness. We can go through the entire history, right? I've given a couple of examples, but uh, time and time again, built into the system is a privilege for whiteness. Um, and the same thing took place across the course of Latter-day Saint history. Uh, so it's been called out. It's been called a sin. Um, and... Um, so what I said to the reporter uh, simply says, Reeve said that the church and its leaders need to do more than just speak out against racism and acknowledge that some previous teachings within the church were racist. What's wrong with saying we got it wrong? What's wrong with acknowledging our own racism? It's a principle that the church teaches of its members to repent, and a part of repentance is confession. What's wrong with confessing our sins? Racism is a sin. Even if a prophet engages in racism, it's a sin. Prophets are capable of sinning. Joseph Smith has a couple of revelations where the Lord tells him he's sinned. If we put them on such a high pedestal, we make them so distant from our own experiences, and we do ourselves a disservice. It's okay to let them be human. Uh, and humans make mistakes. Um, so we need to acknowledge that. Um, uh, then the report says the gospel topic essay on race and the priesthood says the church doesn't stand by these teachings and leaders now condemn all forms of racism, both in the present and the past. What I said in response was, well, we taught that. We practiced, produced, created racism, and it was wrong. I think that's what the church, if I was hoping for a forthright kind of acknowledgement, um, that's what I think uh, would be useful for the church to say. What does that mean? We had lessons produced by the church that taught racism. As recently as 2020, this year, right. lessons produced by the church that taught racism so acknowledge our mistakes, acknowledge that we practiced, produced, and taught racism, and that it was wrong. Um, so in my estimation, then, owning up to our history has to be a part of creating a better future. Um, if we simply take the stance, well, all of that's in the past, let's just move on, um, it, it doesn't help to heal the festering wounds. It doesn't acknowledge the kind of racism that our uh, brothers and sisters experience in the pew. And it acts as if we have somehow 
repented without going through the full repentance process. We teach repentance, let's practice repentance. Uh, and so I think, uh, um, for me at least, that's a part of the healing and the moving forward. And I think we can do so. Um, it shouldn't be hard. I think, uh, you know, members are open to this kind of uh, humility and uh, movement in the right direction. Um, without that step, it feels like sometimes um, we haven't quite uh, fulfilled all the steps that the church itself teaches are important for repentance. I kind of have some tears in my eyes, Paul, as you talk like that. I wrote down word for word, history is part of the solution. What a powerful statement. Um, I love that. And uh, I agree that we institutionally need, need to learn how to repent. We do teach that really well. And I've um, had the blessings of re my personal repentance in my life, and that is ongoing and it's healing for me. It's healing for the people that I've offended. And I recognize that our institutional church can do that. Are there examples where institutional church has done that in the past? Well, you know, um, I teach Utah history uh, at the University of Utah. And uh, obviously that means I teach the Mountain Meadows Massacre. Uh, and it's horrific. And Latter-day Saints are responsible for the murder of 120 immigrants from Arkansas. Uh, a, a really horrific chapter in Utah in Latter-day Saint history. Um, let me just kind of explain what happened in, the, in my classrooms from before uh, 2007 and after 2007. So in 2007, uh, Henry B. Irene, who was a member of uh, the LDS Church's first presidency, went to the annual commemoration and issued what, by all accounts, even described by the Deseret News, was an apology, both to descendants of the Baker-Fancher party and to the Southern Paiute, whom the narrative had suggested were responsible, the blame-shifting that they bore the weight of, the apology acknowledge both of those things, right? That Latter-day Saints were responsible for the murders and for the blame shifting. Um, whatever Southern Paiutes were there at the massacre were there because Latter-day Saints instigated them to be there. No more blame shifting. And um, I have my students read that and we talk about it, right? Um, so before 2007, when that was issued, there were the, the nature of the conversation would be different, still kind of uh, animosity and anger and frustration. And I understood that amongst my students. But students understand that people and institutions make mistakes. And so they read the apology and the nature of the conversation shifts. Wow, they've owned up to what happened. They apologized to the Baker-Fancher party and to the Southern Paiute. And the nature of the conversation is very different. So uh, that's the most profound example that comes immediately to mind. Um, and so I think there is a precedent. Um, 
I know the statement doesn't use the word apology. The Deseret News that published on it defined it as an apology. I don't know how you read it. I know that they use carefully chosen words and probably had a lawyer look at it. But nonetheless, um, I think it was a humble attempt at trying to say to the descendants of the Baker Fancher Party and to the Southern Paiute, look, we bear responsibility. We're not blame shifting anymore. This was our sin. And I think it's very powerful and very healing. Do you think as active Latter-day Saints, it builds faith or hurts faith when our, when some, an apology like that occurs? I think it 100% builds faith. I think it, um, once again, um, shows humility instead of arrogance. It shows a willingness to acknowledge past wrong. And it shows a willingness uh, to seek forgiveness. It shows a willingness to, uh, you know, make amends. All of those things are, uh, in my experience as a Latter-day Saint, what I've been taught are required of being a good Christian. When the institution models that behavior, I think it endears the membership. I think the outcome is nothing but positive. Love your answer. I agree with your answer. I love you. I love the word endears that you used, Paul. I think the people in my life um, that show the attributes that occurred in an apology like that in 2007 are the people that I'm endeared to. They're real, they're approachable, they're human. It doesn't diminish their role in my life or my respect for them. In fact, when my respect for people like that increases, and it endears me more to them, and I want to be, and they become examples to me of the personal life I want to live. And so I'm with you on that, um, and I hope we learn to do that. I think it builds faith. I think it brings us together as a faith community. I don't. I think we can um, own our history, and history is part of the solution. And recognize there's messy parts of our history and parts that we need to own and repent of. And this isn't LGBTQ focus, but you're aware of that history. And there's a lot of really painful things that have happened. I call it the 40 chapter book. And we're in some chapter between one and 40, the church's relationship with its LGBTQ members. But those earlier chapters in my mind represent really painful things that we said that have caused pain, maybe similar to this sort of pain back black Latter-day Saints have felt. Um, you're just free to go wherever you want in this podcast, Paul. I really want you to share your thoughts, but I'd love you to at some point comment if I'm a, you know, a white Latter-day Saint listener, and I, I want to do better in this space, and I don't have a lot of black people around me. I'm not really a protester. Um, I'm not sure that's the right word. We should call people that go out and march, and they're just trying to help um, black people, but what could I do? And maybe everybody's road that they do is different, but what could I do um, to improve my ability to help Black Latter-day Saints and Black members of our society and our country? Yeah, it's, um, it's a good question, and, and I'm still learning on that count myself. Um, you know, a couple of things, and I don't always get it right. Um, and so give yourself space to, you know, make mistakes, but um, be engaged. Um, so a couple of things come to mind. First of all, uh, learn the history so that you're aware and you're not making comments in church 
that are offensive uh, or that automatically assume uh, things that, in fact, might not be true. Um, at the very least, go to churchofjesuschrist.org and read the Race and the Priesthood essay. It's the essay approved by the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, and it disavows previous teachings such as uh, black skin being a curse or that uh, people of black African descent were fence-sitters or neutral uh, or less valiant in the war in heaven or that interracial marriages are a sin. All of those things have been disavowed by the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve. And it also condemns all racism, past and present. You understand that when we prevented a black man from receiving the priesthood or a black women and men from entering temples, those were acts of racism. When a black person could answer all the temple recommend questions the same as a white person, but the white person gets to go to the temple and the black person doesn't, that's an act of racism. You're discriminating against someone not because of uh, questions of worthiness, simply because of the color of their skin. So uh, the essay condemns all racism, past and present. That includes racism within the faith. So start by just educating yourself, understanding, uh, you know, this history. And it's more complicated. We don't do a good job of teaching it in, uh, uh, for example, Sunday school. We're getting better in seminary uh, and institute because they're using the race and the priesthood essay. Uh, and the rising generation, I think, are encountering a different narrative than I encountered when I was growing up. Uh, so we're in the process of changing uh, the way we tell our own story as Latter-day Saints. Be willing to recognize that what your assumptions or what you think you know are wrong. Be willing to change based on the new information you encounter. So um, next, I would say, be willing to listen. Sometimes I see white Latter-day Saints automatically put up barriers and the defenses go up when uh, a black Latter-day Saint is talking. their experience might very well uh, be different from ours. In fact, they will be different from my experience as a white Latter-day Saint. Listen, we made baptismal covenants to mourn with those who mourn. So instead of denying their experience and uh, rejecting them and saying all lives matter or... Uh, suggesting, oh, why is everything about race with you? Why can't we stand in a place of empathy and try to understand what their perspectives are like and try to look at the world from their point of view? And um, the other thing that I hear Black Latter-day Saints uh, saying is, you know, when incidents of racial violence happen and they keep happening, they go to church, and no one even mentions it in a prayer. They uh, feel like <laughs> no one even is cognizant of the kind of pain that they might be experiencing. So speak up. 
when you're called on to pray. Speak up when you're called on to give a talk. Speak up when you're making comments in lessons. Acknowledge the racial violence that continues to happen in this nation. If you're willing to condemn the destruction of property, why aren't you willing to condemn the destruction of life? Why isn't that a part of what you're concerned about at the hands of people who are supposed to protect and serve? So those are all things that we can do. Um, Mention our history in talks. Um, And when I say our history, I'm talking about not simply white pioneer stories, but also black stories. Um, We aren't telling the full story unless we are including uh, our black pioneers in those stories. And, um, you know, I, I run a database at the University of Utah called Century of Black Mormons. And uh, you can find it at centuryofblackmormons.org. And it's so far uh, 80 biographies of people baptized into the faith between 1830 and 1930. Uh, some of them uh, are perfect for um, illustrating a, a talk. It's a great idea. Um, let's start to include a more diverse sort of uh, understanding of our Latter-day Saint past. Uh, if you're called on to speak for Pioneer, uh, you know, month, next month, if we're, if we're having uh, church services, uh, who knows? But even in the future, be cognizant, right, that um, the, the story is much more complex uh, than we sometimes think it is. And uh, there have been Latter-day Saints in the faith from 1830 to the present, Um because today is June 8th, the day that we're recording this. It's the 42nd anniversary of uh, President uh, Kimball's priesthood revelation. Um, so on my uh, Twitter and, and Facebook, um, I posted two examples from Century of Black Mormons. Two black women baptized at the turn of the 20th century, one in 1909 and one in 1906. One in rural Virginia, one in rural Mississippi both in creeks. One waited over 60 years and the other over 72 years. Both were in the Washington, D.C. temple within a month of the 1978 revelation. 62 years and over 70 years from their baptisms until they were allowed into a Latter-day Saint temple. And they were there within a month of the 78 revelation. Frida traveled from New Orleans over a thousand miles to be there to be sealed to her dead husband. So imagine being told no for 60 years that because of your race, you couldn't enter the temple. It was more than a priesthood restriction. It barred black women from temple rituals. And that's a part of our history. We need to sit with the uncomfortable aspects of our history. If it makes us uncomfortable, it should make us uncomfortable. That's what can produce change. A willingness to engage the discomfort can produce change. So um, I guess those are my suggestions that white Latter-day Saints can engage 
these aren't hard things. None of them are hard. Um, be humble, bring the barriers down, be willing to listen. Well, I have tears in my eyes thinking about those two women that you named by name, where they were baptized and the time spends until they make it to the Washington, D.C. temple and their faith in the middle of a church that couldn't fully meet their spiritual needs. There's some real heroes. Darius Gray, we talked about him before we went live. I've had, the, you know Darius better than I do. I've had a couple lunches with him, and he's one of my spiritual heroes. Yeah, mine as well. Um, and, you know, our history is is filled with these type of uh, faithful Latter-day Saints. Um, uh, you know, um, I'll just share one more because it's it's pretty profound. Um, uh, my friend, Artis Partial, who works uh, on Century of Black Mormons, um, uh, did one of the profiles. Uh, we found a baptismal record for a formerly enslaved woman uh, in uh, South Carolina. And she was baptized in, in her 70s. Uh, but um, in figuring out her story, uh, recognized that the laws on the books uh, in the South, uh, in South Carolina at the time, didn't allow Black people to marry. So she uh, had a, a life partner um, before the Civil War ended, and they ha uh, had a large family together. Um, after the Civil War ended, uh, the state of South Carolina made it possible uh, for these formerly enslaved people to register their love for each other and get a, a marriage certificate. And she paid 25 cents, her and her husband, uh, after the Civil War ended, to enter their love for each other officially uh, because they were legally allowed. Uh, so they spent, uh, I think it's something like over 70 years uh, together. And she was baptized in her 70s, uh, the mother of, I think, something like 13 or 14 children. Um, so think about a lesson where you're talking about marriage and you're using that as an illustration of the power of love for each other. They couldn't legally marry and they had to pay 25 cents after the Civil War was over when they could legally register their love for each other. And they did so the commitment to each other. Right. How does that defy the stereotypes of African-Americans? Right. And she was baptized a Latter-day Saint in her 70s. I love that story. Um, I wrote down one of the phrases you said in that last segment, Paul, discomfort equals change. And I'm thinking of a podcast I did. It's episode 153 for any of our listeners. It's to Colby Jackson Van and James Jones. And it's um, two black LDS men, and they talked about being temple workers and their hairstyle, and both being one being temporary released as a temple worker because of it was to Colby. And something fascinating happened to me in that podcast. I got really uncomfortable. And I thought to myself, is this sometimes we get uncomfortable, we just assume that's a spirit telling us to, that that's not a good place for us to be or we're learning something that's contrary to God's will. And we, we feel we make the link between being uncomfortable with 
a bad spirit. Um, but I recognized what was going on with me there was discomfort. And I was seeing things that I'd never seen before as I listened to, to Colby and James talk about being a black Latter-day Saint. And in this case, his natural, beautiful hair um, being, because of the guidelines in the temple, being asked to cut so he could still be an ordinance worker. And I just, you know, little light bulbs of discomfort went off in my brain. And I recognized that that was not a negative spirit. That was growth. But I had to listen to Colby and James tell me that. I couldn't listen to it with my, I'm a temple worker, with my white temple worker friends telling me what it's like. I can't go to my white temple worker friends and ask them what it's like to be a black temple worker or what it's like to have African-American hair and conform to white styles to be temple workers. And you're nodding your head, but that's just a personal journey for me that was so helpful. And it kind of opened the door to me being willing to be more, um, feel more discomfort and recognize that's part of growth. And that isn't just, you know, somehow I think in the past, I thought, well, that's the spirit telling me to leave. Any thoughts on that? Well, um, I love uh, you sharing that story. It's a great illustration. Um, and your willingness to be vulnerable and sharing that story. Um, I think that's perfectly uh, what uh, I mean when I say, you know, be willing to be uncomfortable um, and be willing to sit with that and figure out what that means and let it produce change. Um, and that's just a, a, a fantastic illustration. Um, and, you know, you were willing to listen, right, to, um, uh, to Colvey um, and, uh, you know, um, understand things uh, from his perspective. And there's on Listen, Learn, and Love under our podcast tab. There's a, there are our podcasts are in categories. Um, Paul's podcast will be here, but there is a group of called Black Latter-day Saints. There's maybe eight to 10 podcasts there. And we haven't done a lot in this space, um, but it's a really important space. And so you could look at podcasts there if you're looking for a starting point, or I'd encourage everybody to look at the BYU Universe article that Paul was quoted in. It was a really good article, and it's not your grandma's daily universe. I <laughs> I like that. Um, I like that, too. Um, I thought that was great. Talk about, um, is, it, is it faithful for Latter-day Saints to believe that the priesthood, the priesthood revelation that was 42 years ago today, extending the priesthood to all Latter-day Saints, is it faithful for Latter-day Saints to believe that was God's will at the time, and that he was behind the priesthood restrictions? That's one point of view, or is it a faithful position to think that was God's, that was never God's plan to have the priesthood withdrawn and the priesthood restrictions, and and it took until 1878 until we, we asked a question that he was ready to answer a long time ago. And I would guess there's faithful Latter-day Saints on, in either camp. I don't want to divide people into camps, but how do you is there are both of those faithful positions or would you encourage one group to reconsider their position? Well, you know, let me answer it this way. Um, my experience has been that, uh, you know, Latter-day Saints who are in the first camp are sometimes prone to judge Latter-day Saints who are in the second camp. And, 
you can be a faithful Latter-day Saint and not believe that their racial restrictions were of God or divine origin. And in fact, as a historian, uh, that's where the evidence is. Um, and that's why I say learn the history, because uh, in my estimation, uh, you know, this unfolds across the course of the 19th century in fits and starts, and you see deliberate decisions being made. Um, and you can see a shift even in Brigham Young from his position in 1847 to his position in 1852. In 1847, he is on record uh, as favorably aware of a black priesthood holder, a man by the name of Q. Walker Lewis, who was ordained an elder by William Smith, who was an apostle at the time, uh, who was in the low Massachusetts branch. And Brigham Young cites him in March of 1847 as uh, one of the best elders, an African in Lowell, Massachusetts, a barber. All of those are descriptions that fit Q. Walker Lewis to a T, and we know that that's who Brigham Young was referring to and calling him one of the best elders. So uh, Brigham Young transitions from 47 to 52. So what I'm saying is... Um, Learn the history, right? Learn uh, the context for the decisions that were being made. Um, and when, uh, you know, a Latter-day Saint like myself who says, uh, you know, this was not of God or of divine origins, uh, to respond by calling my faith into question is really hurtful. And I've experienced it. And... It doesn't feel good. Uh, so you're asking me to believe that God was a racist rather than a prophet, a human, a fallible human was a racist? That's what it boils down to. And the information I have about God is that he and she are not respecters of persons and that they treat all of their children the same. All are alike unto God. And uh, to me, that makes sense because I'm a parent um, and uh, I love all my kids. Um, and uh, I think Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother love all of their children as well. Uh, so, uh, you know, you have to do some pretty, um, tie yourself into some pretty tough knots uh, to try to suggest uh, then that somehow this was of divine origins. Uh, where's the revelation to begin it? There's one revelation in the Latter-day Saint canon on race and priesthood, and it comes in uh, June of 1978. Uh, and it returns us to our universal roots. It returns us back to where we started. It returns us back to where Joseph Smith began uh, with the mandate that this gospel message is to be taken unto every creature, with uh, black men being ordained to the priesthood, uh, with people of black African ascent welcomed into the temple. If you read uh, the publications of the um, uh, times and seasons in Nauvoo, they're talking as the temple is under construction of who will be welcomed into the temple. And they say people of all color will be welcomed into the Lord's house. Uh, 
that was a part of uh, the universal nature of the gospel message. Um, and Brigham Young then transitions in 1852 in a different direction. So I'm only saying all of that to suggest that um, please don't suggest that someone's faith is somehow suspect because they don't believe that the racial restrictions were of divine origin. In fact, um, you know, uh, the, the evidence is in their favor. And uh, somehow calling their faith into question, there's more than one way to uh, be a Latter-day Saint. Uh, and my understanding is that uh, we're supposed to let Jesus be the judge. We're not supposed to judge each other. Um, and because you don't like the message doesn't mean that the messenger's faith is somehow suspect. We're all walking uh, a stumbling path uh, with God, and uh, I stumble all the time. And uh, as such, I try to be more willing uh, to uh, and accepting of my fellow Latter Day Saints who are stumbling as well. I love that answer. Um, I love how you suggest for all Latter Day Saints to learn the history and to learn the facts of our history and let that guide you as you're learning about the priesthood revelation 42 years ago today. Um, you know, I've certainly come a long ways on that. I've, as I've recognized the history, I've, I don't believe that was God's will. I don't believe the God I believe in your point about either. I've got to, um, believe God as a racist or, you know, our law, our leaders at times kept, brought biases into the policy, um, racist policies. I, I recognize that if you've got a, one or the other, it's easier to believe that wasn't of God because that's not the God I believe in. What would you, so I've always felt like God wanted to, if we had asked, I've always felt asking good questions leads. I know in my life when I ask better questions about my life and my responsibilities as a husband and father, I get better personal revelation, Paul. Mm-hmm. And so I recognize it seems like when our leaders ask questions, and I don't know all the questions they're asking, and I don't know what God's will is every time they ask a question. I don't sit on the general counsel's church and know God's will, but I recognize generally when we ask better questions, we get better answers. And when we're open to ask questions that we may not think need to be asked, we get better answers. And I know that as a parent, it helps me. What do you say to people then that sort of this generates a faith crisis where for the first time in their life, they're confronted with the reality that our leaders spoke with limited understanding or were just wrong? Whatever vocabulary we wanted to use, they recognize error in our leaders at times on issues. And that is crushing, crushing or difficult to their testimonies. Yeah. You know, um, that gets at the crux of the issue, and I think that's where uh, this question about race and priesthood and temples ultimately leads. Uh, well, if they could be wrong about this, what else could they be wrong about? Um, and I think, uh, in my estimation, we do ourselves a disservice uh, in a way that uh, sometimes it feels like leadership worship. Um President or Elder Holland reminded us that uh, God only has infallible human beings to work with. It must be frustrating for him, uh, President or Elder Holland uh, said. Um, uh, 
but you know that's all he has to work with. Look around, uh, fallible human beings. Um, the foundation of the gospel plan that I was taught is based on agency. In fact, agency was so crucial that we talk about a war in the preexistence. Uh, so um, sometimes we seem to think that God revokes a prophet's agency when he makes him a prophet. If a prophet has agency, then a prophet can make mistakes. Look at Doctrine and Covenants section one, um, described as the Lord's preface to the Book of Commandments, which became the Doctrine and Covenants. And I just imagine uh, the Savior sort of taking a deep breath and thinking back to uh, all the previous dispensations. Moses um, killing the Egyptian, burying him in the sand, and then called as a prophet. It's not something we like to think of as a resume uh, uh, for a prophet, right? Um, David and Bathsheba, um, uh, Judah um, uh, sleeping with his uh, daughter-in-law. These are all stories that are a part of our scriptural canon, right? These are all fallible uh, human beings uh, who God was uh, trying to work with. And in DNC section one, I sort of probably think he's like reflecting back, right? Peter denying uh, knowing the Savior three times and Savior still trusted him to lead. Still trusted him. Still trusted him. And right? we supported him. Um, and so in DNC section one, the parts that we never quote, we tend to cherry pick a couple of verses out of that section. Um, uh, Jesus says, okay, so in this last dispensation, my servants are going to be weak. They're going to be prone to error and they will sin. Sounds like me. Sounds like, like me. All of us. <laughs> Sounds like all of us, right? Uh, weak, error-prone sinners. That identifies me really well. Um, and, uh, you know, I am more, I have more affinity for um, Latter-day Saint leaders uh, when I allow them to be human because it gives me hope that uh, despite uh, their human fallibility, they achieved some pretty amazing things. And it gives me hope um, that God is still willing to work with me uh, in my weakness, in my error, and in my sin. Um, so I think if we are willing to allow our leaders to be human and get away from this notion that they have to be perfect, um, and then sit with what lessons we can learn, right? What lessons can we learn? Um, and you know, uh, the price of claiming whiteness for ourselves uh, as Latter-day Saints, I think, is a pretty heavy price that we've paid across the course of Latter-day Saint history. What am I willing to do as a Latter-day Saint in the present, right, to overcome um, that privilege of whiteness that uh, we work so hard to earn? Um, and you know, it's okay for me to let them be human, let our leaders be human. I don't believe God implemented this. I think he let Brigham Young put it in place. What lessons can I learn from that? I think having um, 
well, let me put it this way. Um, uh, a good friend of mine um, said this to me. We, we, we don't need infallible prophets. We have an infallible Savior. And I think um, letting our prophets be human um, really should direct us to the heart of our faith, and that's Jesus Christ. Um, studying LDS history has m better anchored my faith in Jesus Christ where it's supposed to be. Um, time and time again, the scriptures say, um, don't <laughs> trust in the arm of flesh. <laughs> Uh, obviously we need leadership. Obviously we need a prophet. Someone needs to be in charge, but their role in my estimation is to point us to Christ. He's never let me down. Sometimes men and women, leaders in the church, members in the church have. And if my focus is on them, then, uh, yeah, I'm susceptible to, uh, you know, uh, all kinds of struggles with my faith. But if I'm anchored in Christ, uh, then I have hope. And um, I have hope for myself, and I have hope for a better world for all of us. That was a beautiful segment. I wish we could... I wish every member of the church could hear that. I wish I'd heard that five years ago, 10, 20 years ago. There's a great spirit here. I hope you can feel that spirit sometimes that I feel in my front room with my guests. I hope that comes through the podcast. Um, thank you. Um, we're kind of coming to the end. There's a few people I wanted to give a shout out. Our mutual friend, Bryant Carter, who messaged me one day about two weeks ago we were already facebook friends but he suggested i get you on the podcast and i'm really glad i acted on our mutual friend bryant carter's uh, message brand is great um and he's been on the podcast sharing his story what a great man he is um you're friends with my brother dave osler who has been um, further down this curve of recognizing racism than i have he has talked about this on our family trips before it was on my radar map and He's older than me. <laughs> that doesn't mean anything like he should be smarter or further along, but <laughs> um, sometimes the older you get, the harder it is to shift gears and be open to change and live with discomfort. And he's been a great example for me as he's been willing to see racism in our church and our society and do, and do things pretty proactively to address that. Uh, my own brother, Jeff Osler, is a history professor at University of Oregon, and he has had this on his... He's a, expert on Native Americans. He's written a book about this, and he's very um, aware of our history with Native Americans. And that's a really troubling history, um, as you know, and other people that have um, are aware of the facts of our, our history are aware of. And um, w my former missionary companion is a close friend of ours, Darren Perry, um, a Native American. He gives you a big shout out on Facebook. I'll read this a little bit. Um, and you can maybe give your comments on why you appreciate Darren. Darren says, it's no longer acceptable to stay silent. It's no longer acceptable to give a pass to racism and marginalization because that is how it's done in the past. Racism is part of Utah history. But as my friend Paul Reeve said, um, so, is a, so is a desire for a better world and a more equal, equitable society. We as a country at the moral crossroads at, at at its time, 
I'm not a very good reader, listeners, as I read. I think if you sat with me in church and heard me read scriptures out loud in Sunday school class, you'd know that. <laughs> it's just not one of my gifts. But we as a country are at a moral crossroad, and it is time for all of us who have been silent to stand up and make a difference. Any thoughts on Darren? Yeah, well, you know, um, Darren is a good friend. I love I love Darren. Um, and, you know, uh his the the experience of the Northwest Band of the Shoshone is also a part of our history. Um, you know, Latter Day Saints. Uh, we we celebrate July twenty fourth, right? Uh, arriving in the Great Basin as religious refugees. Uh, you know, um, Darren's story illustrates that that arrival then means uh, the beginning of a displacement for a whole another group of people. And his ancestors endured uh, a massacre at Bear River. Uh, uh, his uh, direct line ancestor, Sagwitz, survived that massacre uh, and then converted uh, with, uh, you know, most of the Northwest Band to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, um, helped build the Logan Temple, uh, you know, that story is a Latter-day Saint story. Uh, but they also endured racism at the hands of their fellow Latter-day Saints. Those are the stories that we need to be willing to listen to. And Darren is talking about a more just society. That's what I want in the 21st century. And my experience is that listening to my uh, fellow Black Latter-day Saints and Native American Latter-day Saints and uh, Latter-day Saints of color uh, helps us in that hope for a better world. Uh, so um, I think that's what he's getting at. They need a voice at the table. If we're only listening to each other as white Latter-day Saints, we're missing all of God's children in the family. We're missing a part of the family, in other words. A part of the body of Christ is missing. Uh, we need to, to listen, and they need to be included in articulating what that better world looks like. Darren was on episode 145, if any of our listeners want to hear more about his story. And I wish Darren and I could go back to our flat in Manchester, England, <laughs> and have the conversations then that we're having now with everything I know about Darren and his unique um, role and what he's doing for good. Um, just this last segment, we're at the end, but I'd, unless there's anything else you'd like to say, I'd love you to talk directly to Black Latter-day Saints. And if they're listening, and you have already through this podcast and have said some really helpful things, but if you're just going to talk to Black Latter-day Saints in this last segment, plus anything else you'd like to add, Paul, I'll just leave that with you. Um. I'm sorry. Um, I guess the first thing that comes to mind is that that I love you and that um, your lives matter. Um, that this gospel is for everyone. And um, 
uh, I want to uh, be a part of a a better world um, and be a part of the solution. Um, I don't always get it right, but um, uh, I I try. Um, I, I mean, I guess I wasn't expecting that question, so I just started thinking of uh, um, my uh, Latter-day Saint friends, um, and one of the first that came to mind was Karen Dudley, um, who's whose family uh, converted in, in Michigan uh, before 1978. And she's an artist and a friend. And um, so I guess when I said I love you, I was maybe thinking of, of Karen, but also um, all the other Black Latter-day Saint friends. Um, I guess, uh, you know, um, I feel it deeply in my heart. And... Uh, the racial injustice is just heavy and uh you know um i want a better world for all of us thank you paul what a unique life mission you have you have this wonderful academic mind a book writer an author a professor but you have this heart to go along with it it's one of the things I love about Elder Holland. I think he knows the history of our church. I think he understands the facts of our church and the complicated things, but he, he's, and he also has this wonderful heart that we love. And I think that's the Savior. I think he has a heart that would talk like that. And I join my voice with your voice um, for love for our Black Latter-day Saints. I just love the words you said and and we need you. You're part of the body of Christ. We need your gifts and contributions. I know I'm a better person when I have Black Latter-day Saints in my lives for the things they can teach me and their lived experiences. And we can't become the church we need to be without Black Latter-day Saints and LGBTQ Latter-day Saints. And um, so thank you, Paul, for your unique, beautiful life mission. You and your good wife, Beth, do so much good and parents of six kids and and thank you for being on another podcast hosted by Richard Osler signing off on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love. Mm -hmm.